0: Welcome to The Path to Exit, a podcast to help software and internet founders understand the process to raise capital or sell their business.
1: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Mike Lyon, founder and managing director at Vista Point Advisors, and this is The Path to Exit. This show is dedicated to helping founders of software and internet businesses understand what it takes to raise capital or sell their business and how to do it well. My guest today is Lawson Stockton. Lawson's an associate at VistaPoint Advisors and previously worked for DA Davidson and Software Equity Group. You may recognize Lawson from our podcast on Metrics. Today's podcast is about why you should hire an investment banker when selling your company. We will talk about the areas where an investment banker can add value, framing and positioning, negotiation, optimizing post-deal relationships, and where you should not hire an investment banker. Most founders typically hear from about 50 to 60 PE firms and strategic buyers throughout the year, and there are no shortage of buyers. So founders are sometimes tempted to run the process on their own and save money on the fee. This is typically the biggest blind spot we see with founders. Founders are the biggest evangelists for their company. They know their company better than anyone, and they are good at negotiating. What they oftentimes don't consider is that the counterparties they are negotiating against. The buyers are highly sophisticated and have likely negotiated hundreds of transactions. This is their day job. Valuation is typically a zero-sum game, and how you run the process can greatly impact the outcome. Lawson, welcome back to the podcast, and maybe help us start thinking about where bankers can add value. Let's start with framing and positioning. How do bankers do that a
2: little bit differently than founders? I think this really comes down to our experience and how often, candidly, we've done a lot of this framing and positioning for SaaS businesses. And what the real goal is here is, as the banker, how best can we frame this business and position it to the market in the most favorable, call it, settings possible without pushing it too far. So I think really understanding where that proper alignment of, hey, we have definitely framed and cleaned this business up and positioned it as best we can but we haven't taken it too far to where a buyer is going to discredit us for what we're putting forth. And so I think where this really comes into play is gonna be on some of the key metrics around retention and gross margin. So how best can we calculate retention? How can we go to market with a retention profile that's defendable and strong? And then on the gross margin front as well, understanding how to properly load gross margins. So show a figure that's accurate, but also not include things like perhaps new product development. We oftentimes are seeing founders loop in a really large R&D expense into gross margin, bringing that gross margin down into ranges that really aren't true of a SaaS business. And if we're able to say that actually isn't going to be what we would call market for gross margin, we're able to show a higher number that's both correct and going to be competitive. It goes a long way in both getting parties interested and valuation at the end of the day. Great point, Lawson. I think about
1: this more about judgment and reps. And what do I mean by that is judgment. How can we position this retention rate? How can we position the gross margin, knowing that this will get these set of buyers likely involved, but we will be able to survive diligence? And then reps is we just know exactly what these buyers are thinking, what they're going to pass on, what they're not going to pass on. And I think sometimes founders don't really understand the implications for things that they put in their framing and positioning Gross margin is a great example. If you calculate that wrong and it's too low, you're going to have half the buyers pass almost instantaneously. Let's talk a little bit about the buyer's list. Obviously, founders are hearing from a lot of folks. One of the things we hear a lot from founders is, hey, I have a lot of inbound interest. Why do I need to expand the buyer's list? Talk through that a little bit and some of the differences you see between how we run the process in developing a buyer's list and maybe a founder
2: might do it. Great question. So I think the biggest thing here is going to be a little bit around, A, who is best to spend time with, who is best to speak to, and who's going to make the most sense as a potential buyer or investor. And B, the investors and buyers that you also haven't heard from that oftentimes can make good buyers. So jumping into the first part of that, given we are exclusively focused on the SaaS market, nearly every buyer and investor that you have probably heard from, we have spoken to or dealt with in some sort of capacity. And quite candidly, a lot of these names who are pretty aggressive on the outbound, They just may not make sense to spend time with. Specifically, if you're a SaaS business that's seeing some really great success, we'd be interested to see who's reaching out. And we just have a great read on who makes sense to spend time with. And obviously, your time as a founder is really important and you want to go execute in the business. So a big mistake that we've seen is oftentimes founders getting really deep into whether it be conversations, data sharing, and really just being focused on perhaps the wrong buyer and investor. So I think we just have a great sense for who's going to make a great party there. The second part around who hasn't reached out to you that may make a good buyer There's a whole sea of buyers who do not have a heavy, call it outbound, business development effort. So these are a lot of parties who you will not find in your inbox that we would argue are oftentimes some of the best buyers or investors that exist. And they really honestly rely on bankers for deal flow. So by not having an investment banker who knows a lot of these parties, you're going to be missing out on a lot of high quality buyers who not only are great partners and have a lot of experience in specific industries, but also have that capability, whether it be from a fund size or just a sheer business size, to pay a relatively premium valuation. So I think having those two things in mind around where to spend time and also buyers who may not be in your inbox, I think are two big ways that we're able to add value to the table there.
1: And as we think about those inbound buyers that you're hearing from, if you're hearing from 50 to 60 of them. I would say in general, about 5 to maybe 10% of those buyers become buyers that show up later on in the process. And what I mean by that is if you look at the typical buyer universe, maybe up to a quarter of those would be search funds, which if you're a high growth, high margin, high retention rate SaaS business, they're not going to be competitive on valuation. They're just looking for a different asset. You have some segment of that inbound interest that's from value-based PE firms. So these are just PE firms that are just not going to pay high multiples. And then you have some strategic buyers that are fairly cheap or just not good buyers. So when you weed all those out, only about 5 to 10% of those really make it anywhere in the process. And this is really a data game. The average private equity firm we deal with, we've probably gotten 30 to 40 bids from over the past 12 to 15 years. That gives us a lot of data about how they likely bid. And also you see changes between firms. Certain firms five years ago were really aggressive on bidding, but they've changed their strategy. And some firms are kind of in a bind and need to get a deal done. So you only really understand that when you have lots of data. And I'd say most importantly, current data about the state of those funds. Let's keep moving on through the process and talk a little bit about the negotiation strategy. We're going to break that into several segments. But one of the things I like to talk about is our ability to not commit to a buyer. Lawson, talk a little bit about how a banker can add some value there and how that's different than a founder doing it.
2: I think that the biggest thing here, and we've talked a lot about this, I'm sure if you've listened to any other podcast, this has been something that we preach quite a bit, but really is keeping the process non-exclusive. What that means is not committing to one buyer too early on. The reason that we do that and really just trying to be thoughtful around what we share and how best to handle buyers who may push for exclusivity, it just gives us A, optionality, and B, it helps us drive competitive tension across the process. By not giving exclusivity, parties understand they're not the only buyer at the table, so they're less likely to play games, drag the process out. They're a little better behaved around how they're handling the process. One point I think that we oftentimes speak to founders before we actually get engaged is we'll speak to a founder who says, hey, I have an inbound in my inbox right now. I've been speaking to a party a lot and I really like them as a counterparty. Mike, would love to hear your thoughts around how not to lose this party and how we run a process when there is a legitimate inbound offer on the table that the founder really likes the party. It's a very common
1: concern. Obviously, you have spent time cultivating a relationship. Basically, is the banker going to mess this up? And I would say the way we think about this is first trying to understand, A, how serious we think the offer is, how serious we think the buyer is. You can bifurcate that a little bit differently. For example, if you knew it was a value buyer that was going to be a 40% discount, I think we try to spend some time talking to our client around, hey, let's not worry about this too much. But in general, our objective is to not lose the deal that you have. What we want to do is really speed everyone else up and use them to get the process going. It's a concern that a lot of folks have. But if you run the process the right way, you can keep them involved and also speed the other parties up. Moving on to one of the next points in negotiation strategy, sometimes what we hear from our clients is, hey, we have a lawyer who can help us negotiate this and we think that's a better path for us. Lawson, talked about that a little bit and really let's dig into the differences between where a lawyer adds value and where a banker adds value. To start, obviously,
2: lawyers prove invaluable on transactions and are obviously people who need to play a large part in the transaction. But I think it's really key to bifurcate between the two negotiation tactics that the lawyers will have versus what us as the bankers will have. And I think it really comes down to lawyers are fantastic at negotiating legal points of a transaction, but they oftentimes are not going to be negotiating with multiple parties at a time. So when we as the banker are negotiating, this often looks like us speaking to two, three, four, five parties at one point point and how best can we negotiate the business points that we want, whether it be valuation or other specific points within the deal. I think that's the biggest difference there is lawyers are very good at legal points, but we as the bankers, again, are able to manage multiple parties and really hit on the business points of any sort of transaction.
1: And the way I think about this point is I'm sure all of you have been involved with maybe like indemnification language in your contracts. And as you know, that gets very murky very quickly and is typical something lawyers handle and are very good at that similarly trying to negotiate valuation around the retention rates of the business is just something that unless you're like a specialist in software a you just don't really understand and frankly don't realize how to leverage that versus other deals that have been done so i think ideally here you have a strong team where you're strong on the legal front and strong on the business front but some negotiations are just really different and anything that gets to the business or the industry or valuation not saying lawyers can't add value there, but that's just generally not what they do. They're more focused on turning that business deal into the legalese that protects you. And obviously some other things around indemnification and rep and warranty insurance, all those things they add a lot of value on, but it's just not really the business points and valuation. Lawson, well, let's talk about diligence. How do we think about diligence a little bit differently than a founder and where do we add value there?
2: The biggest points on diligence, first off, is going to be what to share and what not to share. I can't tell you how many times we preach to founders. First and foremost, do not share your raw customer file with buyers. I think that's just a great example of how we're able to understand how best to frame certain diligent points and really also when to give certain diligence points. I think another example would be if a buyer were to ask to do customer calls right off the bat, that's something that we would say, that's just not market. That's not what we're going to do. And the process is not going to call for that. So really understanding when to share diligence items and how best to frame them. I think another point goes a little bit to the exclusivity conversation, but pushing buyers to spend money outside of exclusivity, that gives us the insight around their behavior. If a party, whether it be a private equity fund or a strategic buyer, is spending hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars on this diligence work, hiring third-party accountants, hiring lawyers, doing tech diligence, if they're doing this work out of exclusivity, this signals to us, this buyer is very, very serious. They want to prevail on the deal here. And then ultimately, it gives us some more insight into how we're best to negotiate for a better deal. I think on the last point, and this is more of an obvious one, that the diligence really is a time suck. So whether that be cleaning raw data, uploading the data room, communicating with third parties, this takes hours and hours of work. And so I think we're also very good at being able to man that while the founder or the management team is able to run the business throughout the transaction.
1: A key point here, and you mentioned it, is just helping you stay out of trouble on diligence. How do you sequence that? How do you deal with difficult issues that are coming up? So I think that's a primary value add. If a banker is pitching a lot about saving you time, I think that's a little bit of a red flag. Frankly, you hire bankers because you think they're going to out-earn their fee dramatically. That's the only reason you should really hire a banker. Obviously, they're going to help you with all these things around giving you more time back to focus on the business. But again, those are, I would call them, sub-value adds. The main reason you're hiring a banker is because you think they're just is gonna get a much higher valuation and keep you out of trouble in some of these things. Lawson, let's also talk about buyer intent. I think sometimes founders, when they hear from a buyer, they feel like that interest is really genuine and they're likely gonna close a deal. Talk about how we evaluate that and see
2: that a little bit differently during the process. Great point. We've dealt with nearly all of these parties in some sort of capacity, oftentimes in, in recent months. And I think what we really do a good job of here is understanding what is true and genuine interest and what's not. A good example of this that we actually saw in a recent transaction is we had a party who from the start of the process had been speaking to our client before we were engaged. And even throughout the process was talking to us, to Point, about how excited they are to the deal, how committed they are, and how they really want to prevail here. They even an offer to go fly out and see our client ahead of potential bid dates and really try and build a relationship and actually ended up passing a week later without even submitting a bid. And I think that's just a good example of, hey, we understood that was probably going to come just given the party and we had a lot of experience with them before. So with us drawing on past experience, understanding how buyers operate and how they tend to behave in a process, we're able to not only save a lot of time and effort, but also understand how best to negotiate with specific parties who are at the table.
1: Buyer intent is a really interesting one because we judge it not really on what people say, but what they do. So are they spending money? Are they doing all the right things that you should do if you're a highly credible buyer during the process? But also what's been our experience with that buyer? So as Lawson mentioned, there's multiple buyers, particularly private equity firms who talk a great game up front to founders, but we kind of know there's a lot of BS behind that and they're likely not to show up in that way at the end. So it's just important to have a lot of experience with them, pay attention to what they're doing, really how much money they're spending and their prior track record, which I think is tough for founders if they haven't had interactions with them on 100 plus deals. Lawson, one of the things I know that's come up a lot with founders when they're negotiating on their own is you can see the buyer leverage the relationship. So the founder wants to have a good relationship with the buyer post deal. Maybe there's an escrow. Maybe they just want to have a good relationship because that's the type of person they are. Sometimes buyers will try to leverage that during the negotiation, the relationship. How are we able to sidestep that in our discussion?
2: If we as the bank are doing a good job negotiating, there's just going to be difficult conversations that come along with that with the counterparty. If the banker is able to handle those conversations, the founder kind of stays out of the more difficult conversation to have with these buyers. So they're able to keep this relationship and let the banker kind of be the bad guy to an extent. So the founder does not have to do some of the heavy lifting around, hey, this conversation may lead to tense feelings happening across the deals. So as the banker, if we're able to handle those, you're going to be as the founder in a much better position to keep a strong relationship post transaction. And especially if you're staying on board, whether it be as a CEO or, or another key member of the team, you want to have a good relationship because it's someone you're going to be working closely with for months or years to follow. So if we're able to handle some of the harder conversations and be the middleman, you really just avoid putting a strain on a relationship. And I think the founder should be focused on talking to the buyers about the
1: fit between the organizations, the future of the business, really all the good things and the synergies of the deal and stay out of the conversations of we're going to kick you out of the process because you're light on valuation or these terms don't make sense. Creating some space there is really good for that relationship. And then obviously there's someone to blame post deal. And that's really your bankers and your lawyers. And then hopefully you guys have a good relationship and you've maximized your opportunity. So there are some situations where you probably shouldn't hire a banker. Lawson, can you kind of dig into a few so founders have a sense for they know when it doesn't make sense to have a banker?
2: Good rule of thumb here is really any deal that's going to be sub $15 million of enterprise value may not make sense to have a bank at the table. And this is from an economics perspective. A bank is going to have a hard time truly earning their fee on a deal that might be a 5 to 10 to $15 million deal. It's just going to prove difficult. And another part that oftentimes we would say, hey, it may not make sense to hire a bank is going to be any time you are looking to do some sort of VC or any really early stage growth equity round where there's not much liquidity at the table. So this would look like raising 3 to $5 million of balance sheet capital. We would say it may not make sense to hire a bank in a situation like that.
1: Absolutely. I think those are good rules of thumb for founders to think about. So we covered a lot today. We focused on how bankers can add value in framing and positioning, negotiation strategy, buyer's list, diligence, et cetera. But again, back to a point I made earlier, the reason you hire a bank is because you think they're going to make a big difference on the outcome. And all of these things work together to create a really competitive process. But if I had to boil it down to just a few things, I think it's the judgment a banker brings around positioning. How can we position this business optimally? How do we stay out of exclusivity and keep the process competitive? And oftentimes what founders will focus on in their negotiation is they have this reserve number, right? I want to get to price X. And if a buyer can get there, I'll do a deal. We tend to think about it a little bit differently, which is obviously there's that reserve price there. But what's the maximum we can get for this business which each one of these buyers? And that's how we're gearing our discussions. It's a subtle but meaningful difference that I think really drives the outcome in terms of why we run the process the way we do. Anyway, thanks, Lawson. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much.
0: VistaPoint Advisors is a founder-focused investment bank that advises software and internet founders through MA and capital raise transactions. We are a fully unconflicted investment bank who only works for founders on the sell side, so you know that we're always representing your best interests. Securities offered through VistaPoint Advisors, Member FINRA, SIPIC. This has been provided for informational purposes only. It is not intended to address all circumstances that might arise. Testimonials from past clients may not be representative of the experience of other clients and there is no guarantee of future performance or success. Clients are not compensated for their comments. If you have any questions about the process of selling your business or raising capital, reach out to a member of our team or check out the Four Founders section of our site by visiting fourfounders.guide.